0: To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts or visit Slate.com slash DSM Plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. Hey, it's Anna, and this is a special Saturday drop of the show. For three weeks this month, we are dropping new episodes on Wednesdays and Saturdays to share the national call-in series about mental health that we've been hosting with our colleagues at WNYC during this Mental Health Awareness Month. We're calling the series Hold On, and we're taking calls from public radio stations across the country to talk together about our mental health, share your stories, your questions, and your frustrations with the mental health care system. And also, what's worked for you. In this hour, we talked about our relationship to prescription psychiatric medication. According to a 2021 study, one in five American adults are taking medication to treat their mental health. That's more than the number in any sort of talk therapy or counseling, which is about one in 10. In this episode, you'll hear from listeners about the drugs that are helping and about the relationships or lack thereof that they have with their prescribers and how that can be tricky to navigate when trying to change or taper off their current meds. If you want to take a look at this whole series, plus a list of mental health resources, go to WNYC.org holdon. We'll have our final two episodes in your feed next week. Please share this series with anyone you think might find it helpful. Again, you can find it all at WNYC.org holdon. Here's the episode. This is Hold On, a national call-in special about our mental health from WNYC and the Death, Sex, and Money podcast. I'm Anna Sale. Thank you for joining us for this series. We are on public radio stations around the country this month of May, which is Mental Health Awareness Month, to talk together about the state of our collective mental health, where you've gotten help and where the systems let you down. On each of these call-ins, I'm joined by guests with expertise in our mental health care system. But really, the focus of our conversations together is sharing our own experiences more than getting advice. Because unfortunately, a lot of our mental health frustrations don't have easy fixes that an expert can deliver. But we are all experts in our own lived experience. And what we can fix together with these call-ins is lifting the stigma of needing and seeking out mental health treatment. We are focusing this hour on prescription medication and your mental health. Today, one in five people take medication for their mental health. Three decades ago, less than one in 50 people did. And with that rise has come a shift in the relationship between the doctors that can prescribe that medication and the people who take it. I have two guests joining me to take your calls about this. Daniel Tadman is here, currently Getting his doctorate in sociology at Columbia University and is finishing in mere weeks, where he has researched how psychiatric drugs are administered and how it differs for patients depending on how much money they have and other factors. Before he was an academic researcher, Daniel was working to become a clinical psychologist. Welcome, Daniel. Thanks for being with us.
1: Thanks for having me, Anna.
0: Also, with us is Dr. Callie Cyrus, back from the first hour of our Hold On series. Dr. Callie is a practicing community psychiatrist and assistant professor at Johns Hopkins Medicine. Thanks for being with us again, Dr. Callie. Excited to be here. Thanks for having me again. I want to un- start with Daniel to understand your path into this work. You started out wanting to be a psychologist in a clinical setting and then decided you wanted to pull back to study as a sociologist. Who was getting what kind of care based of what you'd seen in your clinical psychology training? What did you notice about how different kinds of care people got along with their psychiatric drugs?
1: So I would say that the thing I noticed while I was practicing and while I was in training was more than the question of who's getting what. I was kind of becoming cognizant of the fact that the different mental health care treatments that we get basically tell us very deep things about ourselves. When we go to see a mental health care specialist who tells us that if we take this drug, if we take this medication, we'll be better, we learn something different about ourselves than if we see a therapist, for instance, who tells us that to be better, we need to understand something about our past. We need to understand something about the way we think about our life. And it really interested me to study Who gets exposed to these different ways of thinking about our own mental health, about our own lives, about our own problems, about what should we do to be better? And the Mm. fact is that different people do get exposed to these different frames of thought.
0: In your research, you've found that way fewer psychiatrists are administering any kind of talk therapy when they prescribe medication. Put some numbers on that for us. What have you found?
1: That is true. So this trend of psychiatrists basically veering away from therapy and concentrating on medication management started probably in the 80s. Um, Specifically, I looked at 21 years since the mid-90s till the mid-2010s. And in that period, I saw that the number of psychiatrists who were not providing medication but providing therapy to their patients basically halved. Mm -hmm. Um, So the majority of psychiatrists nowadays don't do therapy at all. They just see patients for medication management. And psychiatry has become kind of a two-tiered system. You have some psychiatrists who are usually seeing patients in private practice they see them more often they see them for longer appointments they see them in urban areas Um, they get paid differently and these psychiatrists will provide therapy they will sit for longer with their patients they will hear more about them Um, and that's the type of treatment they will provide and the other part of psychiatry are psychiatrists who almost solely do medication management, they see patients more rarely, they see them for very short appointments, and at the end of that appointment, they will prescribe medication, which is very good because medications generally work, and there's a lot of the stress out there that's being relieved thanks to medications. Um, But basically, the type of treatment patients will receive from their their psychiatrist, so my study um, shows, is dependent not exactly on their clinical characteristics, on their diagnoses, mm. on what they're suffering, but on who they are, what's their race, where do they live, how do they pay for mm. treatment.
0: The kind of care they can have access to. Exactly. Dr. Kelly you're a psychiatrist. You do sessions of talk therapy with clients. Um, does this analysis of a two-tiered system about who gets talk therapy along with their medication, uh, does that resonate with you and what you've seen in your practice with patients?
2: It not only resonates with what I've seen in my practice, but it, I think it even resonates with me and my own experience and those of my colleagues. Most of my colleagues, when they graduate, are going into research and they may see some patients on the side or they may see folks in the community. Um, and then there's probably a few Who will decide to go into who will do psychotherapy, which is an interest of mine. And you usually, even though you have a rotation that trained you to do this, you have to seek out that additional training if you want it. Mm. So for me as a psychiatrist, whose personality is interested in this, um, I sought this out and I have a private practice where I do psychotherapy with clients for 45 minutes to an hour. I also have clients I only see for meds for 30 minutes. I've also worked in a community psychiatry clinic where folks come in for 15 minutes with schizophrenia Mm. and bipolar disorder who, just so you know, also need therapy, um, Mm -hmm. can benefit from it. But you just give them meds um, and also hospitals. And you can see, depending on what color they are, depending on their diagnoses, um, depending on where they live and which setting I see them in, and insurance and education, um, it, it looks different.
0: Hmm. And when you're in a session that you know is going to be 45 minutes um, where, where there is prescription medication as part of the treatment, but you have more time to talk, do you talk about the medication in a different way than you're able to in a 15-minute appointment where you are describing, this is what I'm prescribing, this is what I want to hear from you about your experience with this? How do you, how do you sort of like pull out like an accordion how you talk about how someone should think about the medication they're receiving? Well,
2: say the first thing that's important is what's the setting in which I'm seeing the client. So, right now we're talking about my private practice. That means I set it up the way that I want, schedule appointments the time that I want. I do not do 15 minute appointments.
0: And these are private pay primarily, correct?
2: So, these are patients who pay me first. Uh-huh. Um, and then I give them a super bill that they get reimbursed from insurance, which is really complicated because you have to spend a deductible to then get maybe 60% covered. And for comparison, let's say I see my psychoanalyst three days a week. I have to spend up to $15,000 out of pocket before I start to get reimbursement of 60%. So with my clients, my my 30-minute appointments are generally billed at a specific rate unless someone has a sliding scale. And when we talk about medications, when we jump into a 30-minute appointment, I usually catch up and then specifically ask about the meds and then... um, even if there's time left over. Um, I try not to be the teacher who doesn't let you out of class, but I also <laughs> like to say what's going on with your mom. What happened to that person you were dating? And usually other details come out that, that help me with the prescribing, because I need to know what makes them anxious in order to adjust the meds. So with mm-hmm. my, those are my 30 minute appointments with my 45 minute appointments. Um, kind of jump in like therapy does where do you start where do you begin and they start talking and then if i hear that they've had a terrible week at work not getting much done i might say well um were you taking your stimulant every day what was the timing of that or at the end of the session i might say just so you know it sounds like you could benefit from an increase you don't have to do it right now you can keep it in your back pocket let's keep an eye on it but a lot of psychiatrists and i hear this from my patients don't fully explain how these medications work, don't explain the differences. And again, because I'm in my private practice, my first appointments are all 75 minutes mm. so that I can.
0: Yeah. I want to know about that 15 minute appointment, though, Dr. Kelly. What can you get <laughs> okay. done in that 15 minute appointment? Okay. When you're talking okay. About that medication.
2: 15 minute appointment is um, how are you doing? How was your way in? You ask a kind of perfunctory question. And then um, how's your mood? Which is, mm-hmm. you, depressed, sad, whatever. And then you ask, how are your thoughts? Have you been worried about the same things you were? Is it, are they every day, most days? Have you had any hallucinations? Have you still seen that shadow that you usually see? Um, what are your side effects? How much, what hours are you sleeping, going to bed, waking up? How's your appetite? Are you eating more? Have you noticed you've gained weight since you've been on this? Um, have you had, have your thoughts of suicide decreased? Uh Or increase? Have you thought about a plan or not? And then refills. Do you want to make any changes? Mm -hmm. If so, then we'll make them and then we're done.
0: A real focus on what the, the patient has experienced, what they connect to, their response to this particular treatment, and less about the universe of their emotional health. Right. I want to go straight to a caller. Felice in Chicago, what's been your experience with medication?
3: Oh, I've been on medication for many years. I'm 64. Probably started in my early 30s, maybe my late 20s. I started on Prozac, and then I switched to this and that, and this and that. Um, I mostly been on anti—I mean antidepressants for all those years. I went off a few times, but found that I had to uh, go back on. I've switched around on them. I've only been to psychiatrist twice. Uh-huh. Um, I didn't find that. I didn't in, I didn't enjoy either experience. And so mostly the people that have been um prescribing as my GP.
0: You and I've had different
3: GPs along the way. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And I've had different GPs along the time too.
0: And Felice, while you've been taking this medication that you get from your primary care doc, have there been long stretches where you've just been taking it and not really talking to a medical provider regularly about what's going on it's just been something you've said and forget
3: yeah I don't really talk to him I do see a I have a therapist that I talk to pretty regularly I go off and on with her but most you know on a lot so she's sort of the one that tells me you know I think you should try this or try that then I go to my GP and we talk about it but that's only when I'm in a slump or I need to make a change
0: And just generally, if you could characterize these many years where you've had antidepressants as a tool to help take care of yourself, how's it worked for you?
3: Mostly positively. I still have depression. And um, even today, even now, I have depression, but I sort of know my pattern now and I can come out of it easier. And I think that that's um, the antidepressants working for me. So I just sort of it only lasts a day or two instead of a month or two.
0: Yeah. Felice, thanks so much for calling in. Daniel, is Felice's experience something that you would say is commonplace that you sort of find your prescription initially, maybe through a primary care doc, a psychiatrist, is someone you maybe see, but seek, get therapy in another kind of setting?
1: I think it is. So, recent data shows that at least half, if not more, of psychiatric medications are being pres- prescribed by family physicians, by primary care physicians. Um, and, and that's okay, because um, these physicians are trained to treat mild to moderate anxiety and depression. Um, I, I'm curious to know about Felice. Why has she seen a psychiatrist only twice? Um, these many years.
0: Felice, you're still on the line. Can you tell Daniel? Yeah, I didn't enjoy, well, the first one that was so many years ago, probably like 30 years ago.
3: I just didn't really dive with her. And I only, and my, and then my insurance only lasted, I could only see her for, you know, five visits or, or whatever uh-huh. at the time. And then um, some years later, I tried another psychiatrist, and the first time I went to his office, I waited for two hours and never got to see him. So that was bad taste in my mouth.
0: I would and say so. And then I so. finally
3: did get to yeah. And then I finally did get to see him, and I just did not like him. I just did not like his demeanor, anything. So I was just like forget it. I just can't deal with this. I'm not going to another psychiatrist, and so I haven't.
0: And you haven't, Doctor Callie. Anything you want to add about your profession about? I imagine the variety of experiences one can ha- have in a psychiatrist's office.
2: Yeah, I, I think shopping for a psychiatrist can sometimes be like walking into an ortho doctor or a neurologist's office, and I think some of us get anxiety. We don't know how they're going to their personality. Unfortunately, yes, we are psychiatrists who talk to people about their psyches, but some of us have different personalities, or maybe we not be we're not the best at talking about people's problems and so I again I can I feel really bad for Felice that those are the kind of experiences that she's had with psychiatrists because then you don't want to go back again you're telling your deepest darkest secrets to someone who's being you know a little short with you but I think we need to remember psychiatrists are trained as medical doctors and specialists of the brain and the body and some of them are you know scientists focused on that others are more focused on the other part of the conversation but we all try to do the job holistically because you had to meet all those needs.
0: Jennifer in Byron, Michigan, I want to bring you into the conversation. Your experience with prescription medication from your mental health is more recent. What's been your experience?
4: Um. So, yeah, I, I was diagnosed with cancer last year. Um, and so I was in fight mode for that with surgeries and chemo and everything. And, um, you know, everybody around me was like, wow, you're, dealing with this so well and I internally didn't feel like that but I guess you know that was front and foremost so I had my last chemo in March and I fell apart like I was crying all the time I and it just shocked me I thought I would be happy and relieved and you know I had um, nurses saying that that's not uncommon or whatever but so when I saw my oncologist I was fighting back tears and trying to say you know how I felt and his first thing was like well I'll just get you on Zoloft." left and I it was so abrupt I was like okay that kind of shut me down you know like okay I'll take this whatever and I took it for a while and then he passed it off to my GP and when I saw her next she was like is this working and I said no I'm still crying all the time and She's like, well, let's just up it. So they upped the dosage, and um, it just started to occur to me, like, maybe I need to talk and not just keep upping this medicine because it's all just, you know, staying inside. So I talked with our insurance about, um, you know, paying for therapy, and although they were happy to cover the the uh, antidepressant,
0: mm-hmm. all of a
4: sudden the brakes went on, and they were like, well, we have to pre-approve this, and there's limited provider, you know, and so I was getting all this insurance kickback, and I've heard that from a lot of people with mental health issues, Um, but they're like, well, we'll pay for Zola, and I'm like, but that's not fixing it, so it's, after a year of of medical bills that are just, you know, outrageous, it, it just makes you feel defeated, and, like, I can't go to this without accruing more bills. I already feel guilty about that for the financial issues my family's having because of my illness and do I want to take up more? And and then that plays right back into my mental health. So that's been my year.
0: Oh, that's a big year, Jennifer. And Daniel, it sounds to me like Jennifer's experience confirms what some of your research has found about um, what can be difficult about getting accompanying talk therapy along with prescription medication.
1: Yeah, I think so. So it's it's kind of shocking, and, and it's very sad to see just the role that money plays in the provision of care. And the fact is that these insurance companies, other funders of, of mental health treatment are, of course, driven by economic pressures. And they're incentivized to have patients receive the cheapest treatment possible. And oftentimes that's medications. Therapy is expensive. It's a person sitting with you for 45 minutes, for 50 minutes, week after week, for hours. Some therapies are, you know, not short term. Um, And these economic pressures really dictate what kind of treatment different people get based on their insurance, based on their abilities to pay out of pocket. And they also kind of shape the type of treatment that psychiatrists provide too.
0: Trisha in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, what's been your experience with prescription medication and the person who provided it for you?
5: Hi. Um, well, I only first reached out for an antidepressant like whenever I got my... Eviction notice during COVID,
0: mm.
5: and like I'm even feeling myself cheer up right now because of all of the anxiety that comes with that, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and it, I appreciate everyone that said what they had about the difficulty with the insurance providers. So to find someone who could immediately see me, I mean, the insurance provider put me on flo- on the phone with a clinician right away because my anxiety experience, just trying to get information, Mm -hmm. I was having a breakdown. Now, I mean, it was just like a panic attack, but she had to kind of talk me down and say, all right, we're going to get you a few providers, but the only providers that they could provide near me, and that would take patients soon. And this was, you know, halfway through COVID. So people are seeing each other. People are actually going into offices. Um, You know, he specializes in bipolar. And I said, you know, I definitely have these ups and downs. He's like, look, these are not manic episodes. You're not bipolar. I'm going to give you some Zoloft and I'm going to give you, what's the other one? Um, Hold on. I pulled it out so I could remember. Syroquil. I think quetiapine is the generic brand. And, you know, he's like, let's see how that works. And I'm like, well, I mean, I'm not breaking into like crying fits anymore, but it's not really working. I'm having a hard time being in settings with people, et cetera, et cetera. So he upped the Zoloft from 25 to 50 and then do 100.
6: Hmm.
5: And mm-hmm. with the Seroquel, he um, added that up to 100 milligrams. You know, Trisha and he didn't give me instructions on how to take it, so I was uh, taking two of them at night. I couldn't get up in the morning. Uh, I didn't know the sedative effects of the mood stabilizer that was supposed to help me sleep.
0: And and Trisha, it's you. You described this journey starting because of a crisis. Um, that was related to material conditions, which was related to an eviction notice and the fear of losing your housing.
5: Absolutely. And I have seen a therapist before, a talk therapist before, but that was never in combination with medication.
0: Uh-huh. And and Dr. Kelly, I want to bring you in because when you hear Trisha talking about the various medications and the dosages that she's been on, when it's related to something Terrifying in life, which is the the, the terrifying fact of, am I going to have stable, secure housing? Um, how does one think about that as a prescriber of like this is an acute crisis? It is upsetting, and also there are these tools that can help you function while you're going through something difficult. Like how do you how do you think about that as a physician?
2: Yeah. So first of all, Trisha, I'm really sorry to hear this. It's 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 terrible how it's terrible how often it's social issues that really can tank us. I mean, it makes sense, but there's, we need more investment and in social services as well. When I encounter a client who's in a crisis that has to do with relationship, housing, um, something else like that, that's kind of out of our control. First thing you want to do is stabilize. Um, and sometimes meds are the quickest thing and it might be something like a circle to get you sleeping. Although I have some differences in opinions with starting that one. And, um, but it might sometimes be the best thing to do just to kind of get you through not having panic attacks every day. But the goal is long-term. How do we get you to a place where you can operate at a baseline where you're not in tears, not functioning every day? So I try to describe to my patients, right now you're under that baseline. Meds will help you get to an amount, like to a place where you you can access the coping strategies that usually help you. I also tell my clients is that sometimes you don't necessarily need or want a med, which is why seeing a therapist can often be useful. And that therapist will say this might be too much for me. You need a psychiatrist, but sometimes you just need someone to check in with you weekly and provide that ear of support that might help you get through the crisis. Um, So a lot of it depends on the timing, what you're coming in for. But I think if you know you're not functioning uh, most days of the week for weeks at a time, medication can get you to a place. That will help you function um, and deal with the way the world is terrible. It can't solve the terrible problems out there, but it can help
0: mm. when it helps. And Daniel, quickly in about 30 seconds, when you hear that story from Tricia in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, how do you hear it as a sociologist?
1: I hear it as, so I'm thinking of it in, in the context of the pandemic and so many people have gone through very serious crises in that period and we see that prescription medication psychiatric medication has went has gone way up um, there are some states right now that over 33 percent of adults are on prescription medication
0: you said 33 percent.
1: Yes, more that than You said
0: more. a third of us. and yes. And that is both a signifier of what we have been through and also, as Dr. Kelly has said, what some of us have needed to get back over that baseline into normal functioning. But that is an enormous number um, of people on prescription medication. And we are taking your calls this hour about your experiences with psychiatric medication and your relationship with their provider who prescribed it to you. This is Hold On, a live national call-in special from WNYC about our mental health. Please join us after the break. This is Hold On, a series of live national call-in conversations about mental health from WNYC and Death, Sex, and Money. I'm Anna Sale, and I host the podcast Death, Sex, and Money. I'm joined by sociology researcher Daniel Tadman and psychiatrist Dr. Callie. I want to bring Marcy in Grand Rapids, Michigan, into the conversation. Marcy, I understand you are one of those people who's thought about maybe being re- thinking about changing the prescription medication you've been on. What was your experience with that?
7: Yeah. Well, I've been seeing my psychiatrist, well, my whole family has really since the early 90s. Uh-huh. And he always has me on something. I've been on Selexa for a good 12 years, but I recently wanted to get off of it, just uh-huh. to see if I can function without it. But it seems like when I attempt to do it, it it's almost difficult just to get out of bed. So. I don't know if I'm doomed for life and I have to take it forever or if there's an alternative. I, I'm not really sure. But it's like once you get on, it's really hard to get off.
0: Once you get on. For Celexa, was that originally prescribed for what? For what symptoms were you trying to manage? Um, for depression. Mm-hmm. And when you say you've tried to kind of get off of it, why was that important to you? What was the, the, the question you had about yourself, about why why maybe try uh, well, changing it up?
7: Ultimately, it's kind of embarrassing to have to rely on a pill every day to function. So I thought, I'm I can do this. I can do this without it. I won't need it. But in reality, I can't even get out of bed
0: hmm.
7: if I don't take it. So, yeah, it's kind of a difficult place to be in.
0: And when you tried... Especially
7: when that's all you know.
0: Yeah. When you've tried not taking it, was it in conversation with a mental health provider or something you experimented with on your own?
7: It might be something I did on my own. I mean, I did research it um, extensively, like how to slowly wean. Um, but it wasn't successful at all. It was quite difficult. So,
0: And what's your sense about your medication now, knowing that it does help you? get out of bed in the morning and does help you function. Do you feel less embarrassed?
7: No, I'm, I'm still, I still struggle with it a bit, but i sort of, I'm accepting that perhaps this is something I might have to take forever. Um, and I guess I'm okay with that, ultimately.
0: Dr. Callie, I want to bring you into this conversation. When you have a patient who has been on a medication for a long time, and is interested in what happens when they when they go off of it. Um, what's the conversation you want to have with the patient about how to approach that?
2: First conversation I have is um, you know I ask why. What are some of the reasons? And we talk those through just to see if there are there's information that I can I don't want to say correct, but I can confirm as a misconception um, that they might be worried about and look at the data and talk them through it so they understand. But it's if someone wants to go down or off of a medication, the first thing you need to do is go slowly. A lot of people will self-discontinue. Um, they'll say, I think I'm doing fine, or I don't need this anymore, or I'm just, I can't reach the psychiatrist, so, and I ran out. But that's when we have the worst types of withdrawal, and Celexa so tends to be one of the, have some of the worst syndromes. Um, but the more important thing I say to my clients, because I do believe you can discontinue these medications safely without the withdrawal, As I say, what do your next three months look like? What do your next um, six months look like? Which is a tough question because the world is chaotic. But if you know your finances, what's going on at home, maybe it's the summer, you have less workload that you have uh, the time and the space to wean off of these medications slowly without um, your social life drawing you too many um, curve balls. That's the best time to go off with the help of a psychiatrist. It's not like we're miracle workers or anything. It's mostly that we'll say, go down by 10 this week, go down by another 10 that week. But it's better than just stopping it because what happened to um, Marcy commonly happens. And I might just say this really quickly, Anna. I think fear of what they're going to do to us forever is another reason people don't like to start meds. And I think Marcy's touching on stigma, which is, am I going to be someone who's on meds forever? I tell my clients, some of us, And Marcy, it sounds like, I don't know you, but your family has a strong history. Some of us, because of our genetics and also environment are, maybe we're just going to be anxious for a lot of our life. I'm one of those people. I'm a very neurotic person. I'm probably, I'm just dealt with the fact I'm probably going to be on something for anxiety for the rest of my life. Not everybody is. And regardless, everyone deserves an opportunity to try to go off of the meds and to see how you do. So, you know, it doesn't mean you're a weak person just means that your unique combination of who you are from your family and the environment makes it such that you're acutely aware, you know, of how you feel and it impacts you a little more, just like someone who has high blood pressure genetically that worsens at
0: times. And Daniel, do you want to add something to to Marcy's experience?
1: Yeah. So I think I'm going to speak from my experience as a former therapist right now and not as a sociologist, That I think the relationships we have with our problems, with our depression, with our anxiety, are complicated. And also the relationships we have with the things that help us. Hmm. So it's kind of interesting that this medication does help, but it's not easy for us. It comes with a whole world of meanings. What does it say about us? That we're dependent on it? Will we ever be off it? What? And I think that in therapy, for instance, that's one of the things that people can really process and work through.
0: Marcy, thank you so much for your call. Leah in Chicago, where are you in your experience with prescription medication for your mental health?
8: Hi. Yeah, I, um, I've been taking a sexer for the past four years and, uh, this conversation is very prescient. I just this week started to, um, well, I, I, Finished the transition from Effexor to Zoloft, and I—I um, I think the—the the thing that hit me hardest was I was very unprepared for how bad the side effects of that transition could be. Huh. Um, and I basically—I—I I, I knew that there would be some, but it—they were much worse than than I anticipated. And um, when I shared those with my psychiatrist, who I don't really have the best relationship with, um, but i am seeing him now. I'd rather not switch to someone else. Um, I felt like he was sort of, um, I don't know, just not very, uh, sympathetic. Um, he, you know, I had almost flu like symptoms and he kind of was like, well, did you take your temperature? Maybe you're just sick. And I was like, no, they're, they're very concurrent with, you know, the, the last day of me taking my last pill, So I I think they're connected, and I I just feel like he very casually mentioned the possibility of side effects, but I I really felt caught off guard by it, and it was a very, like, terrible, unpleasant five days.
0: And Leah, did you find yourself, like, Googling by yourself or looking at Reddit forums to understand what was happening in your body to get more information, since it sounds like you didn't have a great conversation with your provider?
8: Yeah, I was just trying to, you know— see if this was normal. And sure enough, yeah, there's, there are articles about it out there, but, um, about, you know, the, the possibility of the side effects of his feeling. So I felt a little bit better that what I was feeling was tracking with some of those descriptions, but, um, I just felt it, it kind of walloped me. Um, and, uh, you know, it was just, it was just so, sort of casually tossed out there is like, oh, you might have indigestion, but I actually felt like I had the flu, like I had nausea, uh-huh. and my head hurt, I had chills, and I had very volatile um, emotions, crying, um, and sort of a spike in anxiety.
0: Yeah. And now that you have made that transition, what what prompted that transition for you? Why did you want to try a different medication? Um. Some
8: of the sort of well-known side effects of taking um, antidepressants, um, I, I basically wanted to, without getting into too many details, uh, I wanted to try a different drug that might have less of
0: um, the side
8: effect I was seeking to avoid.
0: Yeah, and then you were surprised by the side effects of that transition. Um, Dr. Kelly, is there anything you want to, to say to Leah about her experience with that transition?
2: I just want to say that, first of all, good for you for looking that up on Reddit. I mean, I, you know, hope, I, I hope it's someone on Reddit who you know has some clinical background, but I think the internet can be a great source of information when you don't have access. Um, just be careful who you get it from. But I think withdrawal is very common. And, we, and I think also the thing is, is that we're psychiatrists. We're not surgeons or primary care doctors. It doesn't mean that we don't know how to diagnose other medical conditions. But folks come to us with all kinds of like weird side effects or like very, very, um, descriptions of when they're going off of medications, what they're experiencing. We can't always say what it is, but it's pretty common. We have plenty of like textbooks that teach us about Effexor is one of like the biggest culprits of withdrawal. So I think that we know these medications have these kind of effect when you go off of them, especially if you've been on them for longer than a year. Um, what I try to tell clients is that again, there's a way to go off safely, slowly, um, and the withdrawal symptoms usually don't kill you. That's not the most reassuring advice, but you can go off of them. you're just really uncomfortable. you might be really uncomfortable for a while, and that's not everybody. Um, so I you know i I'm sorry that you had to go through that and and maybe felt like you were going through it on your own
0: and And Daniel, I wonder, do you think psychiatrists should be more upfront about withdrawal when first prescribing, the process, the the life cycle of what it can look like when you are deciding to take a medication for the first time? I think so.
1: Um, I think, I'm I'm sure Dr. Kelly would agree with me that you want to be upfront, you want to be open, there are no secrets. These are medications that people are taking that are going to have hopefully very positive effects on them, but these effects can also be complicated. I think it's very important that people can trust that their mental health care providers are, you know, upfront and clear with them.
0: Um, Josh, in Toms River, New Jersey, what's been your experience with prescription medication taking care of your mental health?
6: Hi, thank you for taking my call. Um, So I want to share, um, I suffered from anxiety and depression for quite a while, and I put off taking medication, uh, really working very hard on therapy, trying to really get on top of it. Uh, eventually, it was too difficult for me, and I said, okay, I'm just going to take the pill, and I'm imagining this pill is just going to you know, bring me the healing that I'm waiting for. Mm-hmm. And I've come to learn that the pill itself was a, was a journey in and of itself, and the side effects uh, caught me by surprise. And after much time, I really began to think, you know, side effects also is something that's difficult to live with, especially sometimes when people feel not so attached to life, a little bit unemotional, besides for other things. And I've I've grown a lot from being on the pill, but I've made the decision to come off of it and put a lot of self care in place, exercise, meditation friends and all different things. And I could say now that, you know, I'm doing very well. I'm happy and I'm happy I went on the pill, but I'm happy I'm off of it. And I've I've learned that, you know, the experience may be different for everyone. And it's not always just a magical uh, pill experience like we may uh, seem to believe it is.
0: Yeah. Josh, thank you so much for sharing your experience with medication. Daniel, is there anything you want to add to what Josh had to say there in about the last 30 seconds?
1: (laughs) Um, Yeah, so first, I'm very happy to hear that Josh is having a positive experience. And there is research that shows that many, many patients actually prefer therapy to medication. And this also has to do with the previous call. I think that our culture vests mental health care experts, psychiatrists and therapists with so much authority, with so much cultural power. When people go to get therapy when people go to see their psychiatrists they come with great hope <laughs> and they kind of tend to accept um what what the person tells them or doesn't tell them as as kind of a type of truth and i think that when psychiatrists decide to provide medications or not to provide medications many patients might be kind of influenced to just accept it um, because of this authority. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important that mental health care providers listen and ask their clients really what they feel and what they think.
0: Daniel Tadman is currently getting his doctorate in sociology at Columbia University and was a clinical psychologist before that. And Dr. Callie Cyrus was back with us again on this series, a community psychiatrist and assistant professor at Johns Hopkins Medicine. I want to thank you both for taking calls with us this hour. It was a joy to be with you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Anna. Thanks. This was the fourth of six episodes of Hold On. We'll have two more in the feed for you next week. Please share this series with anyone in your life who you think might find it useful. And be in touch with any feedback or stories you want to share. Our email is deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. And you can find a list of mental health resources we've compiled and links to every episode in this series at wnyc.org slash hold on. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios. This series is produced by Zoe Azoulay and Liliana Maria Percy-Ruiz, along with Megan Ryan and Zach Goddard-Cohen. The rest of the Death, Sex, and Money team also helped out Yellow Duke, Lindsay Foster Thomas, and Andrew Dunn. As well as our intern, Baze Hohen. Matt Mirando, Raymond Chan, Wayne Schulmeister, Rob Christensen, and Aaron Cohen supported us with engineering and technical support in New York, and Topher Ruth engineered for me in the studios of the UC Berkeley School of Journalism. Thanks also to Alicia Allen, Jacqueline Cincata, Robin Billenkoff, Mike Berry, Tara Sonnen, Kim Nowacki, and Rachel Lieberman. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC.